Engaging presentations on the most urgent problem of our day and what you can do about it. Now, the End Abortion Podcast by Priests for Life. friends, Father Frank Pavone here, National Director of Priests for Life. Great to be spending some time this Wednesday night with you, March the 31st. It's Spy Wednesday. It's Wednesday of Holy Week. We're getting ready now to start tomorrow the Easter Triduum and the sacred days of our Lord's death and resurrection are upon us. So I wish you the blessings of these holy days that they will bring you and your families closer and closer to the Lord of life, the Lord who has won the victory already over the kingdom of death. And that's so important for us to remember as we deal with the problem of abortion and as we remember tragedies like that of Terry Schiavo, who died 16 years ago today and about whom I will share some recollections. So first, let's go to my book, Pro-Life Reflections for Every Day, and read the reflection about Terry, which is assigned for today. And based on the first letter of Peter, In chapter 1, verse 6, there is reason for you to rejoice, even if now for a little while you must suffer trials of many kinds. Reflection, today is Terry's day, the anniversary of the sad death of Terry Schiavo, who was killed by deliberate dehydration. Some say, I wouldn't want to live like that. But we would not want to live like the homeless either or like those with various forms of addiction or severe economic crises. But like all God's children, we must respect their right to life. Let us pray. Give continued consolation, Lord, to Terry's family, and give protection to all the vulnerable. Amen. If you want this book that has short Reflections and prayers like that for every day of the year, go to ProLifeReflectionsForEveryDay.com. So, friends, the culture of death is absurd. It makes no sense. It's offensive. It's offensive to human reason, to basic morality. It's offensive to the principles of civilization, and it's offensive to God. There are certain points in time when the absurdity of the culture of death becomes more palpable than at other times. For me, these moments happen when standing in front of the abortion facilities, 
I've prayed in front of almost all the abortion facilities in, uh, in, in America. And that's where you see the absurdity of the culture of death and you see in such a striking way the reality of what we're talking about because you see the moms and the dads going in there and you see them coming back out. And neither time is there any joy or peace in their face or in their step. Never any joy or peace. Only despair and tears, grief and guilt, shame, hopelessness. You see the absurdity of the whole thing with officers guarding the doors of these places of death. Why are they guarding the doors? Law and enforcement of law, it's meant for the protection of life. And here they are, and you see security guards, you see the police officers guarding the so-called right of a place to kill children. Then you have the other moment of absurdity which happened 16 years ago when I was, I was there at the bedside of this woman, Terry Shivo, a resident of Florida where I'm living now, a woman who had had a, a brain injury, but she had no underlying disease. She, she wasn't dying. She wasn't terminally ill. And I mention that because it provides a crucial distinction between the case of Terry and the cases that we deal with every day, perhaps many of you in your own lives and families dealing with uh, situations of uh, uh, medical questions. When do we stop treating uh, this loved one? Uh, when do we let nature take its course? When do we take them off machines? Those are legitimate questions that we all have to deal with and there's basic principles, moral principles that guide us in those situations. Uh, to put it in a nutshell, you can never kill somebody. You always have to care for them. There is such a thing as a worthless treatment. There's no such thing as a worthless life. If something provides a reasonable hope of benefit and it doesn't impose an impossible burden, or even an extremely difficult burden, well, then you need to do the things that you can do to preserve life and health. But you don't have to do everything. And that, in a nutshell, is, is the church's very reasonable position on the question of when you withdraw medical treatment from somebody. But the case of Terry was not about that. And, and, and this is where it's so crucial to understand. It was not an end-of-life case. There was not any calculus of whether to withdraw treatment because she wasn't being given any treatment. Now look, I was in her room. To put the story in context, I'll get back to that in a second, bring you into her room. I'll bring you into her room with me. Here was a woman who had a brain injury. Her husband was Michael. Her mom and dad 
brother and sister. That was her immediate family. And at first they were all working together to help her, but as time went on there was a division of opinion within the family as to what, to, what should be done. And Michael, her husband, had the, the medical um, authority to make decisions. And I should say the authority to make medical decisions. He was, he, well, not that he was a medical authority. And uh, it ended up in court, unfortunately, because he was convinced that she should be deprived of all treatment, all treatment, And meanwhile, mom and dad and brother and sister said, no, no, we want to take care of her. We want to take care of her. We want her to get rehabilitation therapy. We want to see if we can bring her back to some deeper level of functioning. Because her functioning was impaired. She wasn't lying still, unable to respond. No. She was responding. She was interacting, but in a more limited way. So a court battle ensued, and Michael actually prevailed upon the court to order that she not be fed or, or given water. Now, I'm saying she didn't need any treatments. Uh, meanwhile, as yes, Cheryl is saying, he had a, went off with another woman. But, but, but Terry had a... Um, had to be fed with a tube because she was not able to swallow. That's not medical treatment. That's feeding. That's your, your food, your, your nourishment. When you come back from a meal, you don't say, I just came back from my latest medical treatment. Of course, it preserved your, your body, your health. Of course, you need food and hydration. You don't, you don't, call, you don't consider it a medical treatment, do you? Uh, and, and this is the problem when it comes to cases like this. There's no underlying disease. There's an injury. An injury is not a disease. There's an injury, but she was living and healthy and to a certain extent responsive. And I was able to see that for myself, as I'll describe in a moment. But as the court battle unfolded and the family kept appealing the case to say, okay, Michael doesn't want to give her any treatment, but we do. So shouldn't it make sense that the parents and the siblings can take back their daughter, their sister, and take care of her. And they weren't asking anything of Michael. They said, go live your life. Just leave us alone and let us care for Terry. And despite the fact that the governor of Florida and the president of the United States and the pope of the whole Catholic Church were advocating for Terry, somehow that couldn't happen. Somehow that couldn't be done. And it shows how, how faulty our legal system, our judicial system is. That humanity cannot prevail over some kind of legalistic court decision saying, oh, well, Michael has the right to decide this. Yeah, and you forfeit that right as soon as you decide to kill somebody. I said it back then, 16 years ago. I say it again tonight. He killed Terry. The problem here is not that we have to provide every 
measure to keep somebody alive if they're dying. The problem is that some people think that certain lives are worth less than other lives. That's, that's the fundamental issue. Because somebody is not functioning at the level of what you might call a normal people, I mean, we can talk like I'm talking to you, you can respond with your comments in, your, in the chat. I mean, we know what it means to respond normally, right? Function normally. But if you can't talk, if you can't swallow, well, okay, you're at a lower level of functioning. But does that decrease your value? Does that decrease your rights? Does that decrease your dignity? Does that mean you're less deserving of protection? That's the mistake we make, we as a society, and, and the courts and, and the laws. That's the mistake we make. And we start to think that such people should just be thrown away. And that's what Michael thought, and that's a mistake. Nobody can be thrown away. No human being is a vegetable. You might lose the ability to function, to walk, to talk, even to move. Terry was not at that point. But you never become anything other than a human being. Now, the absurdity of this case, as the... As the Battles continue to unfold in the courts. At a certain point, the court said only certain people are to be allowed in Terry's room. Now, when I say she was deprived of treatment, not only did they want to take out her feeding tube, thereby introducing a cause of death. Like, notice, this is not a matter of someone who's dying and then you take away the uh, things that are keeping them alive. No, she wasn't dying. By stopping her food and water, you introduce a cause of death, namely dehydration. And when you introduce a cause of death, what's another word for that? Killing. Killing by, can be by, by, by commission or omission, by something you do or something you fail to do. This was killing. So the court said only certain people could go into her room. Now, not only was she deprived of, or did they want to deprive her of the food and water, they were depriving her of sunlight. They were depriving her of the opportunity to go outside and to get fresh air. This was a... Total horror story. Okay, so the court said only certain people could go in the room, and they gave the family, and uh, uh, both families, okay, Michael on the one hand and the Schindler family on the other, the opportunity to make a short list of people who would be admitted to see Terry Schiavo. And they put my name on the list. So I was able to see Terry for, oh, let me think, actually for a number of years before she died. She died in 2005. I was able to see her for um, some time before that. And on my visits to her, she was responsive. Now, you don't need to have a medical degree to know that somebody is responding to you. When somebody laughs at... 
your jokes, when somebody follows you with their eyes around the room, closes their eyes when you start saying a prayer and opens them again when you say amen, that's what she did when I was in the room. That's what, she, that's what Terry Schiavo did. She was responsive. Now, again, I'm not making the argument that because she was responsive, therefore she should have been protected. Her life has value whether she was responsive or not. I'm saying she was responsive to contradict the mythology that those that wanted to kill her were trying to, to spread. If you want to kill her, just come out and say so, Okay. But, but don't try to make people think, oh, well, well, she's a vegetable and she's not responsive. That's nonsense. That's garbage. It's, it's a lie. Again, I was there in the room. Anybody who was not in the room cannot tell me how responsive she was or wasn't. Nor does it have anything to do with how much she would recover. Sure, the family wanted to give her more therapy, more uh, chance at life. But again, it doesn't mean that because you may only recover a certain extent, a certain amount of your functionality, therefore you're not worthy of it. It doesn't mean that. Again, it's a philosophical mistake. It's a moral depravity. We know she was responsive. We know she wasn't dying. Let me tell you something that was not in that room. No machines. And still to this day, the myth is circulated that this woman was on life support. Again, because people are trying to muddy the waters, okay, and turn this into an end-of-life medical uh, decision-making, withdrawal of treatment kind of decision. It was, had nothing to do with that. There was no treatment being given. Terry was healthy but injured. Terry was alive without any assistance. There was no breathing tube. There was no breathing machine. There was no ventilator. There was no, uh, there wasn't even an IV. Uh, uh, there was nothing. No machines. So some pe people who say, oh, well, well, she was on life support. Why didn't they, why didn't they uh, remove her from, from life support? Listen, sometimes it's okay to remove a person from life support. If the, if, the, if the support isn't going to help them. But she was not on life support at all. At all. Her body was supporting itself quite well. She had no disease. You ever hear people who say she was on life support, you ever hear them tell you what kind of disease she was dying of? Ask them that. There was no disease. You never have an answer to that question because there was no disease. So here we're talking, so we have to start the argument by framing the argument, right? If people disagree about the Terry Schiavo case, you've got to start with the facts and lay out what was happening. What was happening was this woman was injured. She wasn't getting any, you know, speech therapy or physical therapy. They, Michael denied her all of that, all of that. And... Uh, Oh, well, Elisa's asking an important question. How did she get injured? <laughs> Bottom line is we don't know. There are only two people who do know. Terry Schiavo, who couldn't talk about it. And guess who else? Michael. And the day that she was, suffered that injury, they had a terrible argument prior to that. 
That's all we know. We don't know exactly the cause of the injury. And maybe, just maybe, Michael didn't want her to be able to speak. Again, we don't know. Of course, people are still scratching their heads as to why Michael wouldn't just say, okay, I'll go on with my life. You folks go on with yours. Okay, so the court battle continued. And finally, I mean, they appealed and they appealed. Congress even got involved. The governor of Florida got involved, Jeb Bush at the time, President George W. Bush. The Pope spoke out, John Paul II. By the way, one of the things the Pope clarified, food and water are not medical treatment. Now, as I said before, when you go to get a meal, you know, you don't say, oh, I just came back from my last medical treatment. And as far as, you know, people talk about artificial means, oh, I don't want any artificial means, be careful of that phrase. The straw out of which you drink is artificial. The spoon with which you pick up food, the fork, the knife that you use to cut your meat, those are artificial. Those don't grow on trees. The microwave that you use to, to warm up your, your food or the oven you use to cook it, those are artificial too. So what are we talking about when we say artificial means? We have to be very, very careful here. Some people, oh, well, I don't want any artificial means. Oh, slow down. Slow down and think about the implications of what you're saying. All right. But Terry didn't have any written instructions, by the way, what she wanted or didn't want. And this was what part of what fueled the controversy. But you don't need any written instructions to say, I should have food and water. Unless my body is actually rejecting. I mean, at a certain point in the dying process, the body won't even accept food and water. Well, okay then. Nobody, again, is, is, is required to do the impossible. But if the body is assimilating... Food and water, this is one of the things John Paul II clarified very, very strongly during this case of Terry Schiavo, was that food and water are normal means of caring for a person, not medical treatment or extraordinary means which can be morally withdrawn. They are not. They're basic care. It's like, you know, breathing, oxygen. Now, the court ultimately ruled that the feeding tube could be removed, permanently removed. And that's when the drama began. Oh, I shouldn't say the drama. It was a drama all along. But the real final intense part of the drama where we saw a starving, dehydrated human being and before our very eyes, that's when it began. That was the middle of March of... 2005. Brothers and sisters, as the days went on and it was clear that there was no more legal interventions that were going to um, help this woman or her family, the attention of the world descended upon that hospice in Pinellas Park, Florida. Here's the irony. I was there, and it looked like 
you know, your local county fair where you have all these booths set up one after another, except, you know, they weren't food stands or games. They were media outlets. Up and down the street, this whole street was, was, was filled with these, these media tents, okay? I remember Larry King was there, Sean Hannity, uh, um, uh, Anderson Cooper, uh, all, all the, the big media guys of, of those days were there. And I went from booth to booth. They were interviewing me because I was able to get into the room still. I was, I was one of the only people who was able to be in the room. And um, here's the irony there. You see the irony? All these cameras, or I mean, there was more camera equipment out there than, 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 than you could count. I don't know how many millions of dollars of electronic equipment and camera equipment were there. But nobody could see her. Ponder that irony for a moment. Not one of those cameras could go inside. The eyes of the world were focused on Terry Schiavo. The eyes of the world, not only national media were there, international media were there. The eyes of the world were focused on Terry Schiavo, but no one could see her. Except a few of us. These eyes saw her. And I'll tell you what I saw. By this time, the day before she died, her mom and dad could no longer even go into the room. Now, her dad has since uh, passed away. Uh, her mom, Mary, is still living here in Florida. And uh, her brother and sister, Bobby uh, Schindler and uh, Suzanne. So I was in the room that night before she died and the, mor and the next morning with Bobby and, uh, and with um, Suzanne. You know who else was in the room? Armed guards, police officers, were in Terry's room. Why were police officers there? By the way, we couldn't bring anything into the room. We couldn't bring anything into the room. Nothing. We had to leave keys, phones, pens, everything. We had to leave them at the desk outside of her room. This is in a hospice. Outside of her room where there were armed guards sitting at a table and standing by the door. You had to be on that little short list to get in the room. And uh, I remember the morning, the morning that she died, I'm, I'm kneeling by her bed praying, and I didn't have my, uh, this watch that I have now. I had a little, little timepiece in my hand. Because I, 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 I had to keep track of the time because I was going out for media interviews uh, all morning long. And uh, so I'm, I'm kneeling there praying with my eyes closed and a little timepiece in my hand. And, and suddenly I feel someone tapping on my hand and I look up and it's one of the police officers. Because not only were they outside the room, they were standing around her bed, around her bed, armed police officers. Not one, not two, not three. There were five of them. <sighs> Taps my hand. Father, what do you have in your hand? 
I said, oh, it's just a little time piece. I'm going to have to take that. We could have nothing in our hands. For fear, maybe, that we had a drop of water that we were going to put on her parched lips. So there we were praying. And we had, like I said, we spent the whole night, practically the whole night the night before. And, and much of that, that morning up until, up until about 10 minutes before she died, we were ushered out of the room. What did she look like? You know, the other side tries to say, oh, you know, uh, uh, oh, someone is asking why, the, why were the police there? Because there was a court order that this woman should die of starvation and dehydration. Nobody was permitted to give her food or water. As a matter of fact, there were some children outside. That, remember, at this point, there were hundreds of people that had gathered outside for days and days to pray and to speak up for Terry. And some children who had come got actually some cups of water and went into the hospice because they wanted to bring Terry a drink of water. Do you know they were arrested? You heard me right. Children trying to bring this starving woman a, a cup of water were arrested. And the judge told them, you have to write a letter. You have to write a letter saying how wrong you were to, 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 to do that. <laughs> but you know what? These courageous children wrote a letter all right, but they said the opposite. They quoted Jesus. Anyone who gives a, co a cup of water to one of these disciples of mine will not lose his reward. They didn't apologize for anything, nor should they have. Shame on the judge. So, the police officers were standing around her bed to make sure nobody gave her food or water. What did she look like? Her face by this time, now this was the night before she died, so it had been two weeks. Not everybody can go that long without without any water. You can go some good amount of time without food, but not so much without water. But she made almost, almost a full two weeks. Brothers and sisters, her face was frozen. But it was not frozen in a smile. It was not frozen even in a neutral uh, glance. Her face was frozen. And I was looking at her face for a long time, trying to think, what are the adjectives that uh, describe uh, what I'm looking at. And the emotions that, that I saw on that face I would describe with these two words. Horrified sadness. That's what she looked like. A, 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 a look of horrified sadness as if to say, isn't anybody going to help me? And she was frozen except for one part of her face. You want to guess which, which one it was? You want to guess what was moving? Her eyes. I'll never forget this. And maybe some of you who have a medical background would know exactly what was going on here, but her eyes were open. They weren't closed. And they were darting back and forth. Back and forth, back and forth. 
she was panting also. She wasn't, she, she wasn't breathing peacefully. She was panting. Unbelievable. And a few inches from her head, on the table next to her bed, as a story I've told many times, a vase of flowers filled with water. There it was. Now, if I had dropped, dipped my finger in that water and put it on her lips, the police officers would have took, taken me out of the room under arrest. The flowers were growing and living and flourishing in that water. Terry was dying for lack of water. Brothers and sisters, the absurdity of the culture of death was very palpable at that moment. And here's the other thing that was very palpable. Your prayers. Many of you lived through those days. Followed the events on the news. Heard and saw me doing interviews. Many of you lived through those days. Some of you maybe are too young to have, have even remembered those days. But people were praying across the nation, around the world. People were praying. They were praying so intensely. And we felt those prayers in that room. It was so palpable. So palpable. And that was a great consolation. And we told Terry one of the things, you know, we didn't know at that moment how much she was able to hear or not hear. And we said to her, Terry, that people around the world are praying for you right now. You are not alone. That was one of the key things I kept uh, saying to her. I would go out of the room. What they were doing, by the way, the ones that were people that were running the hospice were making sure that Terry and her family and I and there were other advisors there of the family would not in any, in any circumstance intersect with Michael Shivo. So when Michael wanted to come in, they asked us a few minutes before that, to go out. They were carefully controlling who was going where. When I came out of the, the hospice, I would go to the, uh, to the cameras. And uh, let me show you a little clip here. One of the interviews I did, I did was lost track of how many of these interviews I did describing different details of what was happening in that room. But I came out there and brothers and sisters, I told the truth about what was happening in that room. Michael Schivo and his uh, uh, attorney, George Philos, uh, were creating all kinds of lies. Oh, this is peaceful and dignified. It was not peaceful and dignified. It was horrifying and violent. And I was able to say so because I was, was in there. Let me show you one of the little clips from the news from those days. 
Morning, everyone. The autopsy being done on Terry Schiavo may help to determine the extent of her brain damage, but the results won't be known for several weeks. Schiavo's father thanks supporters at a memorial service in Florida Thursday night. This morning, a spiritual advisor to Schiavo's parents told Diane Sawyer about his final visit with Schiavo shortly before she died. Terry was holding uh, two stuffed animals, a cat and a dog, and there was a little uh, uh, stuffed bunny rabbit uh, uh, next to her on her left side. Uh, very poignant, and uh, as we sat there and prayed, uh, you know, it crossed my mind that if those animals were real, we wouldn't be able to do to them what was being done to Terry. It was, it was a very, just a very, very emotional time. Are we about to enter another now long court battle over burial and whether she'll be cremated or not and where the ashes will be placed? Uh, my understanding is that she will be cremated. I have not in any of my discussions with the family uh, over the last several days uh, heard uh, anything uh, to the effect that they're going to um, uh, engage in another uh, court challenge of that kind. Shivo's husband has said he plans to have her cremated. Her parents want a Catholic burial. So, uh, and, and there were many such, but I had the opportunity to give many such interviews coming out of that room. And of course, after Terry died to call it what it was, murder, murder, I, I, absolutely no question about it. Um, brothers and sisters, the, um, what's the lesson to be, to be taken from all this? I mean, there are horrifying details here and the lesson to be taken from it is, is, is several, several simple lessons, some of which I, I, I led with here tonight. There's no such thing as a worthless life. There are lives that are functioning at a lower level, but you never lose your dignity. There are worthless treatments, there's no worthless lives. Secondly, food and water are not medical treatment. You don't deny people food and water. And one of the things that has to be done is that state laws need to be changed. Because this, a lot of this is a matter of state law. If the state says that food and water are in the category of medical treatment, well then medical treatment can be denied, so therefore, I mean, you end up having a formula for starving and dehydrating more people. Food and water, never medical treatment. That's another important takeaway from all this. Thirdly, make your wishes known for life. For life. And that's where there's a document called the will to live. Not living will. Living wills can be very dangerous and obscure and vague. The will to live says very clearly, I want measures taken to protect me, to preserve my life. And I will appoint a healthcare proxy to speak for me if I cannot speak for myself. Fine, there's nothing wrong with that. And you evaluate the situation when it arises. In fact, that's part of the challenge of trying to make medical decisions in advance. You don't want to um, make uh, uh, medical decisions for yourself in advance because you don't know what kind of medical problem you will have, nor will you know the treatments available to you at the time that you have them. So it's a dangerous business to try to make detailed medical decisions now in advance of, of a future that you don't know and cannot know. What you can do is, is in broad terms say that in consultation with my clergy and my doctors and respect for my beliefs, I appoint this person to speak for me if I cannot speak for myself. And I want the preference to be for the preserving of my life rather than the ending of my life. 
Because the danger nowadays in our culture, in our society, is not that we're going to be hooked up to all kinds of machines that we don't want, causing us endless suffering and a prolongation of a, of a, of a very tenuous life. That's not the danger, my friends. The danger is the opposite. That, 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 that fundamental, basic care is going to be taken away from you. So the will to live, if you go to our, our, our website, uh, priestforlife.org, uh, and look up will to live, you'll see it's a document. Where there's a different one for every state prepared in accordance with that state's uh, laws and indicating your preference to, in fact, be uh, cared for. That's another important takeaway from this whole thing. But, you know, the other lesson is this. She would not have been killed had tens of millions of unborn children not been killed first. We have paved the way for this. The throwing away of a life that some consider unworthy of living. Well, that's what we're doing with the unborn every day by the thousands. We do it by, with them by the thousands. It's no big stretch for it to happen to someone who's a little older. Let me show you our web page that we have, priestforlife.org. Oh, Colleen is asking an important question. Did Michael ever express remorse? No. Um, at least not that I know of. I think we would have heard of it if, if he did, but no. No, unfortunately not. Okay. This is priestforlife.org slash Terry. Let's go to the top of the page. Priestforlife.org slash Terry is a, is a page that you will be able to uh, find all kinds of links, all kinds of information about uh, Terry Schiavo, about this case. Uh, ministering to her as well. Father uh, Malinowski from Connecticut was the uh, celebrant. I was the homilist um, at her funeral. And then I blessed her grave some weeks later. And I want you to notice something about this gravestone. There are not two dates on it of her birth and her death. There are three. You see it says um, when she was born, December 3rd, 1963. And then the next date says, departed this earth. Now that date there, February 25th, 1990, is the date of her accident that caused the brain injury. Again, we don't know exactly how. Departed this earth? This, this was inscribed, by the way, by Michael Shivo, I should point out right away. Wasn't, was, this wasn't the, the doings of her, her family. It was the doings of uh, the killer. And Michael says she departed this earth in February of 1990. Oh, what a convenient little trick, Michael. What a convenient little trick. Because if she departed the earth, then the person you killed in 2005, you really didn't kill. Look at that. Just by a little magical use of words and the insertion of another date, you escape all responsibility and guilt, don't you? departed this earth. Yeah. So who was the person in the hospice? 
And who was the person from whom you had the feeding tube removed? And who was the person who was laughing at her father's jokes and opening and closing her eyes when I prayed over her? Who was it, Michael? Who was it? Take your sick, destructive philosophies and get away from us. Get away from our country, get away from our culture, get away from our church, get away from our children. Take this destructive philosophy and get as far away as you can, as fast as you can. This is sick. And then you see, at peace, March 31st, 2005. At peace. It's sick. Really sick. This is, reflects, brothers and sisters, what we call dualism. This idea that somehow the life of the person is not the physical life and person that you see in front of you, but some kind of other spiritual element. That personhood, dignity, life itself, belongs to a person only if they are fully conscious and fully communicative. If they're not, well, then, you know, doesn't matter if they try to communicate a little bit, doesn't matter if they have, you know, I don't know, they're breathing and their heart is beating. I mean, these traditional signs of life. Breathing on their own, their body is maintaining itself, like Terry's was. Somehow that's not a living person. This is a sick mentality, and it's a dualism. You know, and it comes in many different shapes and sizes and forms, but, but basically it's saying uh, dual. Dual means two, right? There's two components, and um, if you don't have that spiritual um, component, i.e. that in this case it, it, it's, it's, it's thought of as a, a functionality of consciousness and communication, well then you're less than human. That's a, that's a fallacy. That's a lie. You're always human, even if you can't talk, even if you can't walk. You're always human. You always have the same human rights, starting with the right to life. So that is the, the, the dualism that we, uh, we see here, and we also see it in the problem of abortion. When people say, oh, well, when does the baby receive a soul? Hey, listen, it doesn't matter. What matters is the baby has a body, and the body is alive, and that's a human body, and you can't destroy it. You cannot destroy a living human body. Because a living human body is a living human being. You don't get all spiritual about it. Oh, we don't know if the baby has a soul or not. Doesn't matter. When it comes to the question of may you kill that, that child, you can't. It doesn't change the answer to that question. Nor does it change the answer to the question when somebody is not quite able to talk or swallow. Well, I've talked enough tonight, brothers and sisters. Go to priestforlife.org slash Terry. Look at the different links. And thank you for spending time with me so that I could um, share this, uh, this story and these, uh, uh, these recollections. Um, killing is killing. Killing the innocent. Uh, that is the connection here uh, that we are making. And it's got to stop. It's got to stop through us. 
It's got to stop with us standing up and saying, the children in the womb are equal to us and are to be protected. And the brain injured and the sick, they've got to be protected too from killing. So brothers and sisters, let's pray. Lord, we ask you to bless Terry's uh, family that they may continue to bear witness to the truth of life. We thank you, Lord, that they have not been closed in on themselves in bitterness or anger or despair over all these years, but rather they have opened up and reached out to other families who are experiencing similar challenges, and they have advocated for them, and they have created a network of physicians and attorneys and people who are ready to defend life. We thank you, Lord, for the service that they have given to so many other families, that they have turned their grief into service for others. This truly, Lord, is a sign of your spirit working in their lives. We ask you to bless each of us, Lord. Make us aware of the opportunities that you give us to bear witness to life, the opportunities you give us to serve the weak. Make us effective and make us joyful because life is a joyful thing Although we are filled with sorrow and distress as we see the way that life is treated, Lord, nevertheless, we are also filled with confidence and hope because you have gained the victory of life through the death and resurrection of Christ, which we are about to celebrate in these coming days in a very intense and dramatic way. Bless the world, Lord, as we live through another Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Easter Sunday. Bless us and bring us to a culture of life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, friends. May the Lord bless you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Father Frank Pavone here of Priests for Life. Talk to you soon. We have uh, Jim Garlow, and we have Father Frank Pavone. Someplace there in the audience, so I appreciate you. I appreciate you. Follow him, Father Frank Pavone, FR Frank Pavone, on Twitter. He is the National Director of Priests for Life. Please go to priestsforlife.org. This has been the End Abortion Podcast. To learn more, to help end abortion, and to connect with us on social media, visit endabortion.net.